You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, we are in Genesis uh, chapter 41 there, and uh, just as we kind of transition into that, you know, the summer is a season when we peel back a little bit. The summer is a season, uh, I'm excited about Bible study, basically, of, uh, I've been, I've been running a lot more lately, thanks to my good friend Drew back there in the back of the room there. Drew has helped me uh, run a little bit more, but you know, if you were to run a mile every single day for the rest of the summer, you'd end up by August a little bit better at running, hopefully a little bit. And, uh, and in that same way, um, just the process of working out that routine, that predictable pattern of reading the scriptures, what if we read one chapter a day? What if we just read one chapter a day? By, by my math, it, we'd be done with about five or six books by the end of the summer. We'd do it together. And, uh, and we would share, how many of you guys know you remember about, what, 10% of the things I say and about 90% of things that you say this morning you'll remember. And so what does it mean for the scriptures not just to go into here, into our head, but also um, into our lips and into our hearts so we share it with one another. So that's the whole point of what it would mean in our Bible study times to collect up from the week. What have you been reading? What's God been processing with you? And just not that everybody's going to arrive at the same place by August, but we just take one step together at a time. And so that's what kind of the Bible study is about. So I'm excited about the summer. Summer uh, usually means that kind of lower attendance and people orbit in and out from family and so forth, but that we would continue to be rooted in the word is kind of some of the goal for for this summer. Um, We're in a series currently in Genesis uh, in chapter 41. We'll be in Genesis through the month of June in the story of Joseph. And in chapter 41 in Genesis is actually where uh, the dream comes true. Um, uh, oftentimes, as you know, in some of the responses you heard just now, dreams don't come true, or at least they're largely deferred, or they come out the other end differently than we expected them to. But the dream of Joseph comes true in the sense that, um, that the nations are gathered around Joseph by the end of this chapter. Not so much around Joseph, but around Jesus, a multicolored dream. Paul calls that in Ephesians 3, a manifold wisdom a thing that the, the nations and the angels look into with awe and mystery. How could a broken, fractured Babel world, which is disunified by age and gender and politics and socioeconomic status, how could it all unite in one place and one time around one king, a human king in this sense, Joseph, but ultimately, as we know, as the Bible reader, it's really Jesus in Joseph. And so I've said from the beginning, since the beginning of starting you know, the Joseph segment here, I guess back in uh, after Easter, that, um, that that is his dream for you and I. It's to see the nations be attracted to Jesus. It's to be able to see the nations be fed. Did you know we're in a love famine right now? We're in a wisdom famine right now. We are in a prophecy famine right now. We're in a worship famine right now. And ultimately, Jesus has food in the famine, and he's the only one that has any food in the famine. And so this is a picture, really, of where we're all headed. We're all headed, uh, ultimately, to this dream that I believe that he has for all of us, that nations would be fed in some way through your life and through the dream that God has for your life. And so um, I remember this one summer uh, when uh, in the summer at it's, it's City Church, this other church that I, I went to growing up, um, we would always go out to these little um, local ministries and with the youth group kind of paint houses and do a lot of like work, you know, um, Miracle Hill and that kind of thing, mowing lawns, uh, painting houses and that sort of thing. And so um, one of the ministries we got in touch with was called the Frazy Dream Center. The Frazy Dream Center was rooted right in the middle of downtown, and it was all aimed uh, at kind of under-resourced kids, a lot of free and reduced lunch, a lot of um, just, just uh, risk at-risk situations. And um, I remember that the reputation before we got out there is that 
the Frazee Dream Center was really alive, like that people were being reached there and that kids were being fed, but not only fed, they were being mentored, they were being raised up and they were being um, kind of uh, saved and liberated up out of some of the lifestyles and the patterns of, of, their, of their parents and grandparents and so forth. And so I was excited as a teacher. I used to teach at a school um, where there was 80% free and reduced lunch and I was excited. I knew exactly how impossible a dream like that is and to see a dream like that come true was something exciting for me. And so uh, there's a couple of pictures there, but um, if I could go back to Matt Reeves was the, was the founder of that. Him and his wife, Jenny, just um, started that thing in an old church building there in the middle of downtown. And, um, and really, I went and visited it, and I, it totally makes sense for me. First of all, Matt Reeves' arm is about as big as my thigh. Um, and uh, you know, ever know a guy who drinks like five buckets of water a day? He just carried a gallon of water around because he's like you know, physically superior to me uh, and pretty much everybody else, you know, and he's just picking up kids by the, by the arm and driving that bus and he's just larger than life, you know. And so he was, he was charismatic and magnetic and all that kind of thing. But I love the way they did family. Like everybody had a name. Everybody was Miss So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so. There was honor and respect and family and there was a, a working together. Like nobody was on their own. Everybody served. Everybody got the goldfish for everybody else. Everybody, you know, brought out the dodgeballs and put them all back. Like the kids weren't just consumers. They were all part of this family. And um, I always remember that, that yeah, that, that he knew all the different stories. And so he said, that's still Johnny, and his grades are like this. And, hey, Mark, how's this going? And, hey, you know, um, Ashley, what's going on with this? Like, it was not just numbers. It was names, and it was stories. And I, and I remember every discipline came with a conversation. We'd play dodgeball, and, you know, dodgeball brings out the worst in all human beings in and outside of church, right? And so, you know, the classic example of, of absolute, you know, deception and, and foolishness is like when you get hit with the dodgeball and then lie and say that you didn't. Clearly, the ball went off this way, and you're like, no, it didn't hit me. It's like, really, the ball just totally took a triangle there. Uh, and so kids are just lying left and right, you know? And, and so I remember it was never like go sit and time out and just deal with it. It was always like the, 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 the mentoring and the culture there was we talk about problems. We don't just punish them. We sit there and we talk, why did that happen? What would you do better? And so every discipline was a conversation. And so um, I remember um, driving away that day and it was a convicting but also a sobering feeling that ultimately, um, that yeah, the reason why the, the Frazee Dream Center was, was alive, the reason why the Frazee Dream Center was alive is ultimately because guys like Matt and the people that served with him had to die to the dream. The reason why the Frazee Dream Center was alive and the reason why those kids were being reached, uh, in my opinion, more than the kids that were in my classroom or in my school, is because Matt simply died to the dream of reaching them. And he seemingly, and I wasn't there the day that he did it, and the people that went with him, decided to make the decision that even when it's not successful, even when it doesn't give me credit, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't turn out the way that I want it to, I'm dead to my yes in this thing. I'm closing the door. I'm burning the bridge. This is not going to be about my credit. This is not going to be about my success. I'm simply demanding that God's promise is true in this kid's life, and I'm going to die to this dream. And so um, I, I, was, uh, I was coming out of, you know, coming into that place as a, as a teacher, and I think I was expecting, you know, things like uh, Robin Williams and entertainment, and there must be some Mary Poppins and some singing, and really there wasn't. There was just a lot of discipline, and there was a lot of consistent, thorough daily abided yes. And so um, at, the, at the heartbeat of, of the dream of Joseph, it really is the dream of Jesus in his life, right? Like if you've been reading along, it's not really Joseph that's making his dream come true. It's Jesus that is writing Joseph's story over time. And Joseph doesn't really even know why the pages are turning the way that they are. He doesn't understand why he's in the pit and why he's in the cart. It's God that's writing the story all along. 
But Joseph catches up to it, and he starts to do some thinking, the way that we would do as a Bible reader to realize who ultimately is turning the pages of the story, who is ultimately ushering and, and catalyzing the with God promise in Joseph's life. And the answer to all of this comes to us in this simple phrase, but I think has a lot of authority and power for Joseph, but also for our life. Do you know this phrase? And would you say that you have died or in some way surrendered to this phrase? In Genesis 41, verse 16, Joseph looks at Pharaoh, the highest ruler in all the land who's now come to him, shaved him, cleaned him off, and brought him up out of the pit and asked him for his support and help, asked him to interpret this dream that he has. And Joseph looks at Pharaoh, the one who has all the authority and the power there in, in Egypt, and he says this sentence, Pharaoh, I can't interpret your dream. This is what Joseph says. This is the climax of the whole story. Joseph is doing all this stuff to finally get in front of Pharaoh. And this dream is ultimately the salvific dream. It's the interpretation of this dream which leads to the saving up and the surplus of the grain to feed the nations in famine. And Joseph's response is this. He says, I can't do it. Joseph replies to Pharaoh, but, it says after that, but God will. Joseph says to Pharaoh, with great resolve and great conviction, I can't do this thing. I've been around the block, I've been on a cart before, I've been in the pit before, I've been in the palace before, I've been before Potiphar before, and I know enough to know this. I don't know everything, but I know this. I can't fulfill the dream. I can't make it happen. I can't make my marriage work, I can't make my family work, I can't make ministry work, I can't make church work, I can't make it, I can't even control myself on a good day, and I can't make this thing happen, but I do know somebody that can. And if for all the suffering and the pain and the, and the deferring of dreams, if Joseph has learned one thing, it is this thing that Joseph can't, but God can. This is what Jesus says about, about dreams. Because you know, that's the, that's the idea. Like in the passage and the things we're reading, everyone that you meet, including yourself, yourself notwithstanding, has a dream. And that dream isn't ultimately, although it's distorted and maybe a little bit off and missing some of the pieces of the dream, isn't not from God in the first place. The dream of being intimate with somebody, the dream of having a marriage, the dream of having purpose, the dreaming of being famous or whatever, like, you know, to have significance at least, maybe not the complete human side of the dream and the distortion that we put our sinful nature on. But ultimately, every one of those dreams has a fingerprint. And Jesus is saying that, that ultimately that Eden dream can't come to bear unless, listen, something has to die. This is what verse 24 says in John chapter 12. Very truly I tell you, says Jesus, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And anyone who loves their life, says Jesus, will lose it. And anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me and wherever I may go and wherever I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So it sounds cruel to say that to a disciple, but it sounds biologically accurate to say it to a seed. If there's no seed that dies, there's no fruit. And so it is that Jesus is saying that all of the stories and the pages of our, of our life, whether it's you know, the story of Joseph in the scripture or the pages of our life, we don't know all the answers or the whys and the hows or the whens, but we do know this. We are all being led to one multicolored dream, all the nations bowing to Jesus. And luckily and, and sovereignly for us, we are not the one with the pen in our hand. He is the one and he's leading all, us to this, to all of us to this one solemn place, the place of I can't. The place that any of us would have to come, let alone Matt Reeves or you or anybody else, to just come to this place. I can't. I can't raise my kids. I can't get my emotions under check. I can't change my in-laws. I can't sanctify myself. 
I can't run a ministry. I can't run a Bible. I can't. And Jesus says that no time is wasted and no pain is wasted for any saint that could come to this place and realize the great I can't promise that when I can't, he can. And in the place that I die is the place that the dream gets released. For the dream to be released, the dreamer has to die. There can be no credit for dreamers. There can be no success for dreamers. Anyone that will see the kingdom of heaven dream, the one that actually gets released in the God can promise, has to come to the end of themselves. And there's no shortcuts. And it's the sober, somber, you know, somber reality that for the kingdom of heaven to break forth, we would have to die to our life in order to find it. So this is where we pick up in Genesis chapter 41. Pharaoh has two dreams. There's a lot of scripture today, so I'm just going to read through um, a lot of it. And, uh, and, and, and we'll take, make little uh, caveats as we go. But in verse uh, 1, it says this. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those that were by the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows, and Pharaoh woke up. So there's been a pattern of twos, and if you've noticed it, you know, he's in the pit and he's in the prison. He has the robe the first time and the second time. He has two dreams. Pharaoh has two dreams. There's two years before these things. There's a pattern of twos. And what the Bible is saying that anything could happen once by luck, but if it happens twice, according to this scripture, then it means that God has his fingerprint on it, meaning that God is sovereign over all of this stuff. The entire story that's going on in Joseph's life is handwritten by God. And so, not unlike any of these other people, Pharaoh and the cupbearer inside and outside of the promise of God are all privy to dreams, but privy to dreams that they didn't make up on their own, dreams that God put on their heart. But here's the crucial problem, is that humans without God can't interpret dreams. And that's exactly where Pharaoh finds himself, just like the cupbearers. He has a dream on his heart that he can't fulfill. He has a dream on his heart that he can't make sense of or interpret it. And so it is with us, without Jesus, in and outside of the church, as we go and grasp at our own dreams, can't seem to find the vision for it, or the, or the wisdom for it without Jesus. And so that's that desperate place of having a dream without interpretation, having a calling and not having a vision, having this, this angst inside of us of something that we're longing for that we can't seem to bring about the fruitfulness for it. And so Pharaoh is not like any of us. He has this dream that he doesn't have an interpretation for. And so he comes and he has the second dream. Listen, it says, he fell asleep again and the second dream happens and the seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. And after them, seven other heads of grain sprouted up. But the second group was thin and scorched by the east wind. And the thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. And it says the Pharaoh woke up the second time and it had been a dream. Verse 8, it says, In the morning his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them this dream. No one could interpret it for him. So if you looked at the pattern of the dream, there's cows and there's wheat and there's land and there's rivers. And across cultures, really, back in the ancient middle, you know, Near East, is, is that rivers are this source of life. And so it, it needs to speak to us that Pharaoh's dream, the setting, happens at this place of this source of life. In the Bible, you know, the Jordan River also is a place of change. It's a point of decision. So you've got this river, you've got this land, and you've got these cows, and then there's this repetition of numbers. Did you notice all the numbers, right? Was it sevens? And sevens in the Bible make our eyes, you know, widen up because seven always mean completion, always means Sabbath, okay? And so what I seem to see, and a lot of commentaries see in this, is that it's this dream that has a lot of the pictures of Eden without the placement of it. 
It's this dream that has the animals and the livestock and the grass and the rivers, like the rivers Euphrates in the beginning of the Genesis dream, without, without the clarity, without the vision, and most importantly, without the tree. It's a dream of Eden without the tree of life. And so Pharaoh is going to have to go and search looking for this tree. The tree of life was the place where the wise one could sit by the tree and be taught by God the wisdom, the wisdom of what's good and evil. Now, Adam and Eve, of course, were much like you and me. We didn't want to trust God and sit by the tree of life, so we chose to take the definition of good and evil on our own, the knowledge of good and evil without the wisdom for it. And so the world knows the difference between peace and war. The world knows the difference between humility and arrogance. The world knows the difference between um, evil and good, right? But it can't seem to grasp the wisdom for it because the world knows the knowledge of good and evil but doesn't have the wisdom for it. So Pharaoh's got the knowledge, but he doesn't have the wisdom, and he needs somebody to tell him the difference between good and evil. Hebrew words are tov and raw. And so he needs somebody to tell him, what's the difference between the good cow and the bad cow, and the good wheat and the bad cow? And notice all the adjectives that are listed in there, skinny and gaunt and sleek and fat. That's what wisdom is, isn't it? Wisdom isn't just yes or no, right or left. Wisdom is how. Wisdom is it's time to be quiet, it's time to speak, it's time to laugh, it's time to mourn, it's time to dance, it's time to be quiet, right? So there's this wisdom that is lacking because Pharaoh has knowledge, but he has no wisdom. He has no fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of all wisdom. So he goes out and he looks, and I just want to read a passage just in, in context of this in verse Kings, uh, 1 Kings 3. This is Solomon now. This is another dream because the Lord speaks in dreams. But just notice the contrast of Solomon, the one who's the king over Israel, and how his dream looks versus Pharaoh's. Just as a contrast to exposition in 1 Kings 3, it says this, Solomon says to the Lord in his dream, so give your servant a discerning heart. That word's going to pop up several times in the passage today of what Pharaoh is lacking. Give your servant a discerning heart to govern the people, okay, just like Egypt, just like the Pharaoh is, to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. In other words, show me the tree. I can't rule without the tree. I can't have a dream without a tree. I can't have an Eden without a tree. I need the tree of life. I need access to your wisdom. I need you to show me the way. I need you to give me discernment. And, and God's going to say, that is exactly the prayer that you want to ask because if you're going to rule somebody, let alone your own life, you need to know the difference between right and wrong. You can't just have the knowledge of good and evil without the fear of the Lord, without wisdom. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And so it is. It's like we get into these Hollywood movies like Star Wars and it's clear, right? The Star Wars movie has kingdom principles in it. Have you ever woken up and watched the movie and go, this looks like the kingdom of God. This looks like, this is exactly what happens. He's got the father and he's got the daddy issues, right? And you know, whatever it is, you know, it's like the servant is always the better one, the humble one and the sacrifice. And there's these kingdom principles, but for all the kingdom principles that producers can write and produce and put lighting and makeup and the actors can say the lines, we have the knowledge of that thing without the wisdom to act it out. And every actor that ever sits in one of those places can play the role of the hero but can't live it out in his life and has four and five wives and does all this crazy stuff because we can have the knowledge of it. We know what it looks like, but we can't seem to break into it. We can't get to the tree. So the cupbearer from the last story comes up to Pharaoh and he says, you know what? It's crazy. Today, I was reminded of my shortcomings. I mean, can you just think about the fact that God, God governs the human mind and the heart and he puts things before us? Like in his forgetfulness, God has tapped this guy on the shoulder to remind him just at the right moment of the solution, not only for Pharaoh's problem, but for his. And so he says, hey, I remember this guy in prison. Not because he did, but because the Lord remembered J Joseph in prison. Verse 10 says, a Pharaoh was once angry with his servants and he imprisoned me, the chief baker, 
uh, in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us has a dream, the same, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. That was the idea, right? It wasn't just a dream manual. It wasn't through analysis. It was through anointing. And Joseph is able to interpret any dream. Any dream could come to him, and he could just see and divide the spirit and the flesh there and to know the wisdom between right and wrong. And so Joseph has been doing this. You know, it's like, it's like my Uncle Al, you know? Like he... Um, has done well and has made a lot of money, but they always say the same thing about Uncle Al. He spends a dollar the way he'd spend a million dollars. He doesn't spend it, right? And so Joseph has been doing this thing when it was hidden and when he's up in the public eye, when he's out in front of Pharaoh. And so he's been doing this. He's been interpreting dreams with the meaning of their own because the Spirit of God is on him. Now it says, a young Hebrew was with us, and that's Joseph. Uh, he was with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him our dreams, and, the, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turn out exactly as the interpretation um, uh, had been given. And I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh has asked for an interpretation of the dream, but he's about to get a revelation of Jesus. Pharaoh has, has prayed. Have you ever been to a place where you're just praying, you know, for, uh, for a spouse, or just praying for health, or just praying for... Um, a community, and God gives you that thing, but it doesn't quite look like the container that you asked for, and he ultimately gives you even more than you're asking for. So this is what Pharaoh's asking. He's asking for the interpretation, but he's about to get a revelation, and he's not only going to get a guy that knows how to interpret the dream, he's going to get a guy that knows what to do about the dream. He's going to get Joseph, who is able to rule. He's not just able to interpret. So that Hebrew blessing is reminded here that, that, that Joseph interprets dream not because he's smart, but because God's with him. And God is with him, and, and he is the engine of this promise. All right, so here's what verse 14 says. So Pharaoh, he sends for Joseph. He needs a discerning person to interpret the dream for him. And as soon as he does that, Joseph was, listen, it says quickly, that's an important word, just quickly brought up out of the dungeon. I mean, just one minute, he's in the middle of a dungeon with all this smell and bodily gross stuff. And, you know, he's got a beard that grows down like castaway. And he's never seen the light of day. And he's really distraught and probably worked up. But look at how quickly this happened. Boom, he shaved, changed his clothes. And before you know it, he's out of the prison in front of the most powerful person in the land. He's free. So I was thinking about this, um, uh, this ministry that I'd seen uh, at one point that gives haircuts to, to homeless people. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're walking down the street and you're smelling things and you're seeing things and you know, you, you, it's almost painful to watch, you know, like what spiritually, emotionally, physically happens to a person when they lose hope, when there's a brokenness, not just on the outside, but on the inside, and when they give up on the hope of tomorrow. And so how powerful is it when somebody comes along and it's just a haircut, it's just a, a shower and a shave, it's just a bath, but restores dignity. I remember to buy a suit off of that guy, he looks so good, right? Um, here's another guy, and, and you're walking down the street, and you saw the person on the left, you'd have some assumptions, You'd have some assumptions about where they are and where they're headed. And, and maybe even because of our fleshly nature, because we look at the outside, but God looks at the heart, we might treat those two people differently from the left to the right. You might cross the street you know, away from one person or cross the street towards one person simply because of their haircut. And that's what the Bible is saying, I think, in this passage is the thin layer between the pit and the palace. It's not so far off the valley from the mountain. It's not so distant, that, you know, the deferment of the dream and the breakthrough, like it's not so, so distant and, 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 and vast between where you are and, God, and where God's calling you to be. And so, and, and so wouldn't that speak to us this morning? That like, we were in COVID, masking it up three months ago, thinking this is forever. And here we are, like, we're going to have a service next week and it's over. And how many of you guys, like, whenever you get through a test, you wish you could go back to the test so you just stop being a baby about it for one minute, you know what I mean? So you didn't freak out because it's like, you get out of this scary, you know, hairy dream, this scary, hairy nightmare, and you almost wish you could go back to that old spot so you could actually practice what you couldn't do now, which is faith, 
which is trust God in the middle of it rather than wait until the very end of it. And so he's showing this thin line between breakthrough. He's saying almost in a way like, look, miracles are nothing to me. Do you understand? Do you understand that the thing that you're praying for, the money or whatever, the job promotion, the health, like that's nothing to me. That's, that's miracles grow on trees for me. I'm not impressed by miracles. I see miracles. I, am, I do miracles. That's not a problem. It's like the thing that surprises and I think impresses God is not miracles, but faith. It's, 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 not, it's not so much the circumstance around Joseph, but it's the, it's the culture within his heart that impresses Joseph. Of all the things, right? Like when Jesus goes around Galilee, he's, he's not really impressed with, he's, not, he's got pigs with demons in him. He's throwing them out, right? He's talking about mountains being moved and these lepers. Like that's normal to him. There's nothing, he, he, he says it without a sweat. He raises Lazarus and there's not one bead of perspiration. You know what he says he's amazed by? That centurion that came to me, he says, you know what? I'm a Roman centurion and I know how to tell everybody where to go. And he says, I know that you have the authority of heaven and earth in your hands, so I'm trusting you. And he says, you see this guy? There is not faith in all of Israel like that. It says Jesus was amazed. There's only one spot in the scripture that says he was amazed at something and it's amazed at faith. It's amazed at this sentence right here. This is what I think the entire, the entire passage of Genesis, where we are 35 all the way to 41, this is what it's all about so that this would come to fruition. Verse 15, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said that uh, when you hear a dream, he says, you can interpret it. Joseph says to Pharaoh, looks him dead in the eye as though he's practiced this line in his, in his prayer closet before. Verse 16, I can't do this thing, says Joseph. I've been to the pit, I've been to the palace, I've been with Potiphar, I know all this stuff, and I know enough to know this. I don't know everything, I'm not a smart man, but the only reason why I'm here is because God is with me, and I can't do this thing. I can't do it. I've tried, I've been tested, I've been strung out, I've been stretched, right? I can't do this thing. But I know who's somebody who can. The God that I know will give Pharaoh the answer to his desires. I was reminiscing uh, this last couple of weeks, Matt Cochran here told me a story I had forgotten about, um, when I'd first come to this church just to um, be a part of the church and be a part of the community at City Lights, uh, we moved a piano. Anybody ever moved a piano with you before? You know who your friends are when you call and they say you can't move the piano. It's like, well, that wasn't my friend in the first place. No. Um, when somebody's ready to move a piano for you, they really love you, right? This is kind of what I've learned as a, uh, as a moral to the story. And so it was Matt and then it was Kyle Walker who was here last service. I'm trying to give props where, where credit is due. And there was one other person, wasn't there, that was here? Paul Garrigan that was here, yeah. And so we're moving this piano for Kyra and me. And uh, I was driving in the car and I remember Matt asked me, this is one of the first times that I'd ever met Matt. Matt said, hey, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me what, tell me your dream. And I said, without a blink of an eye, uh, just what had come to mind, you know, and obviously something that I'd carried for a long time. I was like, I think one day I would love and be honored to lead a church. This is what, what I said. And, uh, and I think Matt was like, oh, that's a pretty, you know, lofty dream. You know what I mean? I don't know what he thought about that at the time. Uh, but it's just kind of funny to think about. Um, whenever that was, six years ago until now, uh, being uh, the pastor here at the church. And uh, it's been quite the ride, you know, because 2019, um, basically I was the associate pastor uh, when the lead pastor stepped out. And so in 2019, I became the interim pastor. So that was the first year. And then the second year was the old COVID year. That was pretty crazy, right? So we had a whole COVID year, which was pretty crazy. And then this is the year that I think is going to be hopefully a little smoother than those last two years. Um, but I can say all that from these last two years, three years, to testify to you that uh, it was a lot harder in those three years um, to be a pastor than to move a piano. And move a piano is pretty dang tough, you know? And over those three years, like, I don't know what's been going on for you in the last three years, but I hope 
And I think the scriptures would hope and appeal to us that hopefully over the last three years, if anything has grown, if anything at all has grown in our life, it would be the list of things we put under the I can't category. If there's anything that has happened, if there's any reason for the pain and the prolonged thing and this, or the ups and the highs and the lows, it's just one thing to understand that nobody gets anywhere without God and the with God promise, and that that list would get longer and longer and longer until it it encapsulates and eclipses our life. I'll tell you what, there's a... um, Here's a couple things that, I, that I've got on my list of things that I can't do, okay? So there's a book by Andy Stanley, great book, if you ever preach a sermon, and it's called Communicating for a Change. And I still use the book, and it says, you know, you should have a me and a we and a he and a you and a us, and, you know, he has this whole rubric of how you would do, do sermons and stuff like that. And I like it, but the only thing I would, you know, have protest about is the name of the title, because here's the reality. I realize from 2019, 20, and 21, I can't change anybody with my communication or anything else. This is what I've realized is that I've tried Skype, you know, I've tried Zoom, I've tried email, I've tried texting, I've tried all sorts of types of communication, and I'll just tell you, words are powerful, but they can't change people's hearts. God changes hearts. This is what I've had to come understand. I love to be able to say after 2019, 20, 21, it's like a realization that I can't unite a church, and neither can the elders and neither can the deacons. The Holy Spirit unites the church. Ephesians 4 says that we're guarding the unity of the church that the Holy Spirit has given as a gift. I can't heal I can't organize myself. I could barely get my emotions intact some of the times. I don't know about you, but I can't get my household all the time to do everything that I want it to do, right? So this is the, this is the concept, is that God is not wasting a second of this thing because here's what we come to be sabotaged by and ambushed for in the whole dream thing, is that God doesn't, God cares about the dream, but he doesn't care about the dream as much as the dreamer. And then ultimately what he's doing in the three months and the six years and the 17 years of Joseph's life is he's not just giving a dream, he's building up a dreamer. And he can give a dream in a second, right? You can get a dream in one night, but it would take 17 years to plant a dreamer by the tree. It would take 17 years to get the person to the I can't prayer. And we're stubborn. And even though we say that, you know, we sing songs like this, like we can and you can and this poverty of spirit. The Bible says that we are obstinate, like two-year-olds that always want to put on our own diaper and we can't do it yet. We're continually trying to tell God that we can do things that we can't, and he's waiting for us to get tired enough to finally surrender to this one prayer. I can't, but he can. This surrender place. So it says in verse 25 that Joseph says to the Pharaoh, the dreams of the Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows and the seven year, are the seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven, uh, are seven years as well. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up after the seven years are so that the seven worthless heads of grain are the same as the seven worthless heads of grain that are scorched by the winds of the east. They are seven years of famine. So see the mastery there. That, he's, that Pharaoh, like let's not forget, has just went around in a survey of the entire Egyptian kingdom, the sorcerers, the mystics, the wisdom people, the teachers, the philosophers of the age, can't seem to interpret the dream of Eden because they can't get to the tree. They have the knowledge, but they don't have the wisdom. But, but seamlessly, Joseph comes in there, and just because he sat by the tree for so long, he knows the difference between good and ugly, and bad and high and low. He can just tell. He just has the wisdom to interpret the dream and rule at the time. And verse 28 says this, it is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. 
And the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been decided by God and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man. Put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that they are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come up out of Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by famine. So Pharaoh bit off more than he can chew. He didn't just get an interpretation, he got an application. He didn't just get somebody that knew what the dream meant. He got a guy that knew what to do about the dream. And that is what has happened in Joseph's life. We don't see it seamlessly. We don't see what happened in the pit and in the germination of that seed. But Joseph, somewhere along the line, decided that faithful prayer that maybe the scripture would visit us today for the same prayer of fruitfulness. It's the only prayer. And it's, I can't do it, but God can. And out of this comes all sorts of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is just the beginning of all wisdom. And so he was walking in wisdom, not only with the supernatural ability to interpret dreams, but the supernatural wisdom to apply them. The plan seems so good to Pharaoh and all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man? One who is occupied by the spirit of God? The Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all the people that submit to you uh, should submit to your orders only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And so there's a point at which Kyra, you know, gets a lot of things right in my life and I ask her questions and she gets them right. She tells me what to wear and what not to wear. She told me to wear green today and not white. And I don't even ask her any more questions because I know she's got the right answer. There's a point at which, you know, the person can have the interpretation and then you realize somebody in your life, if you have anybody like this, they're just always right. Like you might not even like them, but they kind of all, you know, they know it all or whatever maybe and they just tend to know what to do. And, and so this is what's happened is that is that we've discovered that, right, Joseph is not only somebody that knows how to listen to the tree, Joseph has actually become like a tree to Pharaoh. Then the terrain and the scope of all of Egypt, he can't find the tree. He's got the money, the power, the wisdom, the knowledge, the know-how, the sorcery, but he can't find wisdom because he doesn't have the fear of the Lord in him. So Joseph is what Pharaoh's not. He has wisdom, but also he is wisdom, and he knows what to do. He has become like the tree. So look at Psalm 1. This is the promise, the epitome really of what it means to grow next to the tree of life rather than growing next to the knowledge of the tree of of good and evil. It's essentially taking God at his word and trusting what it says. And notice this Psalm that I'm gonna read. It's not about intellect. It's about application. It's not about the head getting bigger. It's about the heart getting stronger. It's, It's something more than reading books. It's something about courage. It's something about taking steps and not knowing what the step is going to lead to, but just taking it. And when you take that first step, the next one starts, opens up and you take that next stop. And so it's not a picture of this great mastermind of a person that sees the whole map. It's just a person on one of the roads taking steps with Jesus day by day by day. This is that picture. This is the Psalm 1 tree. Blessed is the one, says Psalm 1. Should be an important Psalm. It's the very first one. Who does not pick up their phone before they pick up the Bible. They know where wisdom and knowledge is. And they're going for wisdom because the fear of the Lord is not something out of a book. It's something that comes from a history with God and it can't get circumvented. So it's that simple and that hard at the same time. This guy, right? He's, he's not only listening to the tree, he becomes like the tree because he walks not in, the steps of the steps, or not in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take. 
or sit in the company of mockers. So Joseph's 17, and he doesn't know where his dream's leading him, but he's just kind of going. And he realizes that God is going with him, and no matter if he goes high or low or east or west, he's actually already in the dream, because the dream is in him, and Jesus is in him, and he's in Jesus. And so he's following him, and he's deciding, this is what wisdom looks like, not to stand with Potiphar, not to stand with Potiphar's wife. Does that mean to be a jerk? No. Does that mean not to like abide in wisdom? Does that not mean to not engage them and love them? No. But it just means don't make fellowship with them. Don't fall for the temptation, the temptation that kills, right? The pornography that kills all of, ravages our, our young men and, and even young women. Don't, don't walk in step with that. But day by day, grow in the fear of the Lord, walking according to his precepts, according to his commands. This person, says Psalm 1, becomes like a tree. He delights himself in the law of the Lord and he meditates on the law day and night. This is a daily thing. The dream doesn't just happen in a, in a moment, in a flash, in a nighttime. It happens by days, it happens by days. It would have had to, like, if Matt Reeves decided that he was only going to start a ministry in downtown Greenville, if the kids loved him and their SAT scores went through the roof the first year, the dream wouldn't have happened. He would have quit. Matt had to die for the dream, for the dream to come alive. And that means it wasn't just a moment. It was a daily death. It was a daily decision to say, although I don't see the bigger picture, I know the one who has the picture in his hands. I'm going to trust his voice and follow it diligently. He becomes like this tree. All of a sudden, Joseph is the tree. Do you get the picture? It's Eden without a tree. Joseph becomes that tree for Pharaoh. And of course, the tree rules because the tree was put up above all the other creation. So the tree planted by streams of water, it yields fruit in its season, and its leaves do not wither, but it prospers. In Revelation, it say those leaves go on to feed the nations. And so this is the reality, like when you go into the Fraser Center, and you've gone into these places, Places that have fruit, you only have to look around for five minutes and you realize fruit is only around dead trees or trees that have died to themselves. If there's no Matt Reeves that initiated it, the dream doesn't happen. And in many ways, Matt and Jenny and all these you know, people that are in your mind, you fill in the blanks of the, of the different people that have shown you what it would look like to trust in, in the tree every day, in our tree, the cross, there's, there's no dream if there's no tree. And so I just want to show this to you as kind of like, I think even from the beginning, the structure, the framework of the Torah teaches us this. And I'll understand this is all part of the Torah. Like this is all one big, you know, we're supposed to sit and read this thing from the beginning to the end to see what happens of the tree in the garden. Just let me just look at this. Genesis chapter two, verse eight. Just look at the architecture of the Garden of Eden. This is what the Garden of Eden is made up of. It says, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Verse 9 says, The Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, and the trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the knowledge of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The passage goes on and it talks about the rivers and the onyx and the fruit and, and the land and the, and the produce and all that stuff. But the, the scripture, like, in terms of Hebrew, like, the order matters, and it wants us to know that all the stuff, the metal and the water and the resources, all that stuff doesn't happen without the tree. In the, in the government of that passage in Genesis 2, the scripture wants us to know we ain't got no land, we have no water, and we have no fruit unless we have that tree. The tree is the tree of life. The tree is the dream. And without the tree, without the fear of the Lord, there is no dream. The blessing itself, the garden, turns into a curse if the tree is abused if the tree is um, ignored. 
The tree is the center of the dream. And without the tree, there is no dream. Without the cross, there is no kingdom. And that is essentially what I think this would say of the wisdom of the age as we look out you know, into the political landscape and your personal life and so forth, is that everybody wants the kingdom. Hey, do you want to go to heaven? Go outside, go ask somebody. Hey, do you want to go to heaven? Yeah. What do you think about Jesus? That's where we come to the, the crossroads, right? The tree, the gospel, it says in 1 Corinthians 1, is the foolishness of the world, but it's the wisdom of the wise. It's the wisdom of all ages. The cross is our tree. Every person has a, a tree that has a decision point. Moses has the burning bush, and uh, you know, Abraham has the trees of Monre, and, and Adam had to make his decision in front of a tree, and we stand today in front of the tree of the cross. It is the wisdom, and it's saying that any kingdom, all the stuff we see in Star Wars and everything that's promised under this, uh, under this earth, is a dream we can't get our hands around except for the cross. And without the cross, there is no dream. And without the cross, there is no kingdom. Without repentance, there is no belief. There is no resurrection. And, and, and so it's putting that tree back in the center of, of the landscape. And so here's what really, really rubs us. Why is it taking 17 years? And why is your dream being deferred? And why is it that you can't seem to find shalom? And, and you can't, and, 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 and we're not quite able to grasp at some of these promises that God has in our life. And it's not the answer that we want, but it is the answer that we need because God is more concerned with the dreamer than the dream itself. And he's interested in releasing the dream through the dreamer that dies and so the dream ultimately is not something that comes around us, but it's something that comes inside of us. It's, it's that we're, we're wanting to have a spouse and we're waiting for the dream of the picket fence and the kids, right? And so then we ask, well, why? I mean, if it's just, just a snap of a finger and a haircut and a shave to get me from the prison to the palace, why would you wait for that? Why, why, why? Are you being cruel? And if we read the pages of Scripture, he's not being cruel. He's just helping us recalibrate what the dream is because the dream for Jesus is not so much that we have a perfect spouse, but he makes us the kind of spouse that is perfect for the spouse he's giving us. The dream that we have right on the Swamp River property, those of you guys that have been here from day one, is this wonderful dream. And it would take the hand of God to deliver that dream to us. But I'm pretty assured by a passage like this that ultimately he's not really wringing his hands about what he's going to do about 17 acres of real estate. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. The dream is nothing to him. What his eyes are focused on is the dreamer. What is in the heart of the church that would occupy that space? And all the time that he's using from zero to 17 years or 25 years or however long it is, is all made for this purpose. Time and pain is never wasted. Is so the dreamer would come to die to realize the dream. And this is the dream for you and I. I just wrote it in my own terms, but I'll read it out in the passage as it kind of closes up you know, a picture really of a bird's eye view or a God's eye view really of where he really sees you and where you're really seated. But I just wrote down a couple of notes that the dream of Jesus over your life and mine is not just for us, but it's for a multicolored family. Paul calls it the manifold wisdom of God, the thing that angels look into. His dream is not, you know, the Egyptian dream or the American dream. It's the kingdom dream. It is Babel gathered by the tongues of fire around the Holy Spirit, and many added daily. And they broke bread together and devoted themselves to the reading of Scripture and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. And there was no need among them. That is Jesus' dream. And anything that gets in the way of that dream is going to get pushed over. And he's working on us. He's not given up yet. You're like that little Nemo fish and you can't see what's in front of you. And you're taking all these steps and you don't all the time know how or why or when. But he does. And he's taking you to this dream. And I believe that Joseph, the pages of Scripture, are trying to give us a picture of a vision of where you're really headed. Because it might take a minute to give a dream, but it would take a lifetime to make the dreamer, to, to prepare the dreamer for that dream. Are you and I ready to host a multicolored family? Are you and I ready 
to share and be and, 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 and integrate the gospel into our day-to-day rhythms of life for a multicolored, multi-generational, multi-gifted, five-fold family that gathers around Jesus, but ultimately to them, would they be able to see the Jesus in you? That you not only listen to the tree, but you become like the tree. Not only Christ, not only that I have died. You know, Paul says, I have died and Christ lives in me. I no longer live. He lives in me. This is what the dream is. He's more, considered, more concerned with the dreamer than the dream. And to release the dream, the dreamer has to die. The dreamer has to let go of success. To see a multicolored family come around and be fed and famine, you'd have to give up your parking spot. And much more than that, we'd have to give up our prejudices. We'd have to give up our comfort. We'd have to come alive to the real dream. Jesus says that if any fruit comes about, it's because a seed of wheat has fallen to the ground. I wonder where you are in that process. I wonder what, that, what that, the pit and the palace and all that deliberation has looked like for you. Maybe it's taken longer than you wanted to, but it's not longer than he planned. And he is trying to release something powerful into the nation to feed, to feed in the famine. So let me just read this. And this is almost like a dream sequence. It's like a picture, you know, when you were to zoom out and see the whole path from the beginning to the end. What would that do? Like if you could really go ahead and zoom out and see what your life looked like from the beginning to the end, you can't see the left and the right, you know, it would make you thankful for every little thing. I was, I was talking to my mom this week even, and she was telling me about how her pay stub came out a little bit short, so she came into her work in Albany, New York, and then she um, was upset because she realized that like everybody else was getting politically all these raises, and it was just unfair the way they were doing the paycheck. So she took that paycheck and started looking for other jobs, and she got a job in South Bend, Indiana. And that year, I was in eighth grade and met Kyra Wong, you know, or Kyra Cattell at the time. And then we got married, and I came to Jesus. I wasn't even a Christian by the time I moved to South Bend, Indiana. And then I come out here to Greenville and so on and so forth, and it all came down to one paycheck. It came down to one thing, and it sort of asks, like, as you see your little life moving from the valleys and the mountains and the ups and the downs, if you were to see the big God's, you know, God's eye view, like, what would you tell yourself on Tuesday and Monday and Wednesday and Thursday if you could see the bigger picture? But this is the bigger picture. I mean, this is where everyone in the kingdom of heaven is, 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 is headed. And, this, and he's wasting no expense. He's sparing no expense to get us to this place in his name. Pharaoh says to Jesus, Joseph, rather, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt, says Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in on a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way. Thus, he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So there's all these pictures now that Pharaoh's almost become like the God figure in Joseph's life through sovereignty. Pharaoh is issuing authority that God has ultimately given Joseph from heaven. And he's given him the signet ring. He's given him a robe to wear, a robe of righteousness really is what he's gotten from heaven. You know, that other human robe, they'll take on and off of him. But the, hum- but the, but the heaven robe that has gone on Joseph from the beginning of his life really cannot be taken from him. Potiphar, Pharaoh can't take the robe that Joseph has on. He has authority, he has identity, he has anointing, he has fruitfulness. These are the dreams of heaven over you in my life. Verse 44, then Pharaoh says to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot against you in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephanath Penia, which I think Joseph was better than that, but anyways, changes his name and gives him a wife, Asana, the daughter uh, of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. And Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the uh, service of Pharaoh of king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land uh, produced plentifully, and Joseph collected all the food and produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it 
Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea, kind of like Abraham. And it was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. I mean, it's like food is nothing to God. Who, what is food for the person that can just make food like that? It wasn't about the food. It was about Joseph and about his dream. And so verse 50, before the years of the famine came, two sons were born of Joseph, daughter of Potiphar and the daughter of Potiphar. Joseph uh, named his firstborn Manasseh. And so the names always give a little bit of a heart. Like, what is Joseph thinking at this point? If you were to get into the inner monologue of Joseph's head, this is what Joseph's saying. I know I have these, kid, these kids because God has made me forget all my troubles. In just a moment, he has not forgotten me and he's causing me to forget my troubles. In all my father's household, boom, 52, he has a second son. Remember that we're called to be fruitful and to multiply and everyone that is in the kingdom is fruitful. So the second son, he names him Ephraim. And it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And so it's not him, it's God that does it. Verse 53, Joseph knows all this stuff. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end and the seven years of the famine began. And just as Joseph said it, there was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all of Egypt began to, uh, began to feel the famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for food and the Pharaoh told the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. And then finally, verse 56. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and the grain, and here's the dream coming true. This is what God sees when he sees you and me. He's able to sell the grain to the Egyptians for the famine was severe throughout the land. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was so severe there. This is the dream of Jesus. He won't relent in doing it. And he's not afraid of sometimes injuring our feelings and our pride and getting us to that place. It's for the dreamer to die, for the dream to be come alive. The dream is too big for any individual person, for Joseph, let alone any of us. And it would cause, he would waste no expense to get us to that place. We come out of the house barreling with bravado and confidence about what we can do. And in many ways, our theology is something along the lines of, God can, but I need to help him because God can't do it without me. And so I'm going to be really awesome and moral and ethical and keep up my, you know, facade, really. And, and make a good witness to, to show God is awesome by way of association right? And the years move on, and then the dream doesn't come out the way that we want it to, and so a part of us dies, and we start to die, and so it turns from I can and God can't, or can some of the times, to something more along like I can't and God can't, and how many of you guys have lost somebody before, or went through a total tragedy before, and you just think, what the heck? That's the beginning of that, in the pit where you're dead, and I can't and God can't. But after a while, there's this place, and blessed are the, those who mourn. Blessed are those who have poverty in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers because they find the kingdom of God. At the place of I can't, we discover the I can. And he'll waste no expense in, in getting us to that place, that, that surrender place at the end of our rope where we find God. Um, one of my kids, and I can't say her, her name anymore because I have to pay her, uh, yeah, uh, injured herself recently um, at the YMCA, you know, playing volleyball. She played uh, volleyball, and she tried to hit the ball with her left hand. And uh, you're not supposed to do that, she, so, she, so she took a topple. And, uh, and as soon as she went down, I mean, I've had enough kids that broke their arm. They always break their arm or their something, you know, their ankle or whatever in May. Because in May, then you can't go to the pool ever. That's, of course, what happened, right? And so we're supposed to go on this vacation this week. And I'm already, you know, up here two sermons ago complaining about how, and we, you know, pastor's vacations or everybody's vacations get ruined. It seems like it just seems like there's a perfect storm. So she's got her ankle. She's her job's on, on the line. You know, all this stuff. And I'm slow to the take, but I'm quicker, I'm quicker to the place, and I think that you probably are too, as, as years have worn on for you, you know, is, is that if you're reading Genesis, you just have to come to the place that, like, I can't control what happens and comes in and out of my life. And listen, this is the big point, and I'm glad I can't, because I couldn't write a dream like this. 
And if I was the one that wrote the dream, I would probably screw it all up. I'd probably make it into a nightmare because I have made a nightmare because I never put the tree at the middle. I always put me at the middle. And there is no dream without the tree. And there is no dream that has life unless somebody has a seed that dies to it. And so if you, like, I don't know if you've ever worked in, in places like this before in the Frazee Center. Like, you're like, man, the distance between you being literate and illiterate is so thin. If you could just buckle down for one center, like one summer, you could change the trajectory of your whole entire family generation. And nine out of 10 of them don't ever walk away learning how, learning how to read, right? Nine out of 10 of them just give up because they can't see past their circumstance. All they see is what their uncle did and what their dad did and what all the people around them are doing and they can't see out of the little circle and the little bubble. And that's what happens. It's this excruciating thing that you're like, look, like books are not as hard to read as you think and schools are not as hard to get into as you think. And making whatever amount of money to get out of that impoverished lifestyle that you're in, like, is not that hard. But, you know, like, it's easy to change the circumstance around somebody. It's impossible sometimes to change what goes on between somebody's ears. And that's what amazes God. It takes somebody, right, and he'll use and waste no expense on any circumstance in your life to get you to that place of I can't but God can. And realize that I don't want to be the one that writes my own story. And I don't want to be the one that makes my own dream because dreams without him are nightmares. And so can I read a promise of God to you just to consider? We wrote up, I don't know if there's a picture on there, but we wrote up the little memory verse with all the first letters of each of the verses to see if you can memorize it. So a C and an I and a P and a J. But James 1, 2, 5 stuck out to me today. It just says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, in the palace and in the pit, in the waiting, in the running and the resting. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because they're not new, Potiphar's and Potiphar's wives, they're a dime a dozen. Because you know this one thing, the testing of your faith produces perseverance and perseverance finishes its work so that you're a perfect dreamer, so that you know where the tree is and you know not to take the dream on your own terms and redefine good and evil because that's a nightmare. But perseverance does a perfect work in you so that you're mature, so that everything in your life is an I can't next to his can. Mature and complete and not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, hey, you should ask God for it. Tree of life, wisdom, it says Lady Wisdom in Proverbs is screaming out at every, every corner. The fear of the Lord is open to every person that would come and turn. If you want wisdom, don't go to the book. Go to God for it. He will give you all wisdom so you're lacking in nothing. Verse five, if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. So I just have a prayer on the screen that you might consider and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you on. But I wonder where... He is finally getting your attention for the I can't prayer. Because even tying our shoes, I mean, even managing a budget, even managing a diet, being unoffendable, being forgiving, just even doing the thing that you did yesterday for 15 days in a row, even today, seems harder than all the 15 days because every day we can't do it on our own. We need him to do it. And this is why he would have you in a pit, that we would not waste our pain in this prison or in the pit or in the palace or anywhere else so that we would wake up to his dream. And this is his dream, the I can't prayer. And what is it that comes to your mind when you see those words on the screen? I'll ask the band to come forward and, um, and lead us, but I would, I would invite you maybe even to say, Holy Spirit, show me what this is. Show me the I can't barrier that you're trying to show me because this is the point of the season. The season is not the dream. The season is just the process. The season is just the tutor that is inviting us to know the real dream. 
And the real dream is this, that I can't, but he can. And he'll shave your face so quick and give you a bath and a shower so quick and get you up out of that situation. Your kids are going to grow up and move out so quick. And we're going to get through COVID so quick, like in a flash. First Corinthians says that when Jesus comes back, we're going to be changed in the twinkle of an eye. Go from sinful to righteous. To go from much more than illiterate to literate, from death to life. And it's just that simple. It's just that quick for those that will believe. For those that say, I can't, but you can. And so I wonder that we wouldn't waste our days down here and we wouldn't waste his dream over our life to come to that place early and often. I wonder, even today, just for one step, blessed is the one who sits, not in the company of mockers, but fears the Lord and meditates on his law day and night and considers this one truth of the tree of, the knowledge, or the tree of life. I can't do this thing, but you can. Lord, speak to us now in your wisdom, Lord. Um, and Lord, it just the world would call it foolishness to make that phone call, to take that step, to confess that sin, it wouldn't seem wise. But Lord, you just said that you're going to despise the wisdom of the age and make it all foolish in light of the wisdom of the cross. And so Jesus, we just say that you are our tree. There is no dream without the tree. And every other dream wants to pull us off into some other tree for the knowledge and for the, and for the uh, fame and for the power your tree, your cross is the only place where we're going to find that dream. And so, Lord, that you would, you would call us even once again to burn the bridge, to close the door, to die to the dream. It is not about my success. It is not about my own personal self-actualization or fulfillment. It's not about my credit, Lord, but, Lord, about the nations coming to you. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would do this work in us, to do this impossible work, and that even you would be amazed and angels would marvel manifold wisdom that's taking place in this room. Kings and queens, Adams and Eves, and the new Adam um, in Jesus, raised up to, to see the dream come to life. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.